0: Welcome to Fret Not with me, Rosie Bennett. Fret Not is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the champions in our field and help us to work out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process. So let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realize that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, a string company with real heart, and my string of choice. Check them out at augustinestrings.com. In today's episode I speak to composer Stephen Goss. Steve was born in Wales in 1964 and spent his early life dabbling with playing guitar, violin and viola, eventually finding himself with a love of writing music. He attended Wells Cathedral School and went on to study at the Universities of Bristol and London and the Royal Academy of Music, where he is currently a Professor of Guitar alongside his long-standing position as the Professor of Composition and Director of the International Guitar Research Centre at the University of Surrey. Steve's music receives hundreds of performances worldwide each year and has been recorded on more than 80 CDs. His works have been performed by many of the world's leading orchestras and has been commissioned works by the world's most loved performers, including percussionist Evelyn Glennie, tenor Ian Bostridge, and guitarist John Williams. In today's episode, we discuss the myths of talent, genius, and tradition, and we started by reflecting on prejudice and bias in the guitar world.
1: There's a wonderful book by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink, which really Mm. kind of sums up our prejudice very very well because basically he says that we've been we've evolved to make um snap decisions about things just thin slicing so that we take in the minimum amount of information from the outside world and process it as quickly as possible to come up with a kind of understanding of it uh Mm. and it's within that moment that we can be we can sit down in consciousness and say oh yes you know i'm not biased at all i'm uh, i'm i'm fine you know oh yes i'm Absolutely. And and yet, in this kind of uh, thin slicing moment, all those deep lying prejudices immediately jump in. And there's nothing we can do about it because they're coming from our subconscious minds and it's just there. So it's, you know, it's it's nothing. It's something we can never, ever be complacent about. Uh, and it's something that we've constantly got to uh, consider and reconsider. Uh, it's not anything that's ever going to be fixed you know during our lifetime it's only when there have been several generations and that kind of initial mindset begins to get unpicked but essentially we live in a in a sexist and racist world and we've just got to somehow combat that wherever we can i mean one, one of the things i've enjoyed recently in composition competitions is that it's all done anonymously and that and that's great because i know the amount of unconscious bias that comes in as soon as you know even the slightest thing about somebody if you've got a composition competition okay you might recognize you know composers that you've seen or you know about and you'll see that oh this must be this person or that person but on the whole it's pretty blind so you don't know male female black white and it's wonderful environment to be in because you're you know you're not being guided by any of these factors I mean, the way that unconscious bias works in competitions on juries and so on is that if you sit on a lot of juries, you get to see the same players a lot. Uh, You get to meet with them, you get to talk with them, have a beer with them. And then before you know it, you know them reasonably well. And then you go to another competition. There's, oh, yes, your friend who you've heard play 10 times before and you've had a beer with and you know they support, I don't know, Wolverhampton Wanderers, and you talk about football and other things. And suddenly you, you you know that unconsciously you're rooting for them. Then you, and then, and also, you know that you're bringing to that experience of hearing them play in a competition all the other times you've heard them play. So you're not really judging them on that one day, that new thing, uh, unless you put all your effort into doing
0: that. Well, you've been sitting on juries for some time now, and I wondered, within that competitive sphere, how have attitudes changed towards prejudice and bias over time?
1: One of the things that i found... Really surprising uh, when I started doing juries was that the patriarchy were pretty ignorant on the whole, and there wasn't this kind of depth of expertise um, and knowledge that uh, I was expecting, really. Um, I have to say, this is changing. I mean, the, one of the things that's happening in the guitar world is a, an enormously fast evolution. It's a bit like computer technology, mm-hmm. it's happening at a kind of exponential rate. I mean, I think a lot of people of my generation, uh, and possibly a bit older, um, are beginning to see themselves as pale, male and stale, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and that times are changing.
0: Steve Goss, what is a lesson that you've learnt that has been the most meaningful to you?
1: Um, I think this is the idea of the talent myth, the idea that somehow some people are more gifted than others and it's something that in a sense is something you can do nothing about I think the most meaningful lesson for me is the fact that actually we are in control of our development as musicians there Mm. are certainly outside factors but very few of these outside factors have got to do with the notion of talent you know because I've been involved in in teaching younger people who are considered if you like talented people often ask me you know what are the things that make a a musician what makes them sort of creative so I've thought about this over a long period of time and there's a kind of list of ever-growing list of skills um, some of which are more important than others but actually your sort of basic aptitude that's how I describe it as an aptitude Mm -hmm. you know clearly some people will sit down at an instrument and they'll start playing and they they can sing things back quickly okay there's some element of aptitude but the people with the best aptitude are not the people who have the best careers nothing like it in Mm -hmm. fact. So aptitude is pretty low on the list, the talent. I think the first and most important thing is imagination, just thinking slightly differently and having that kind of what-if attitude. Oh, let's try Mm. that. If that person can do this, maybe I can do that. Focus and drive, absolutely important. You know, the idea that you can get into something and you can focus on it and you can stay with it and you've got the drive Mm. to remain focused. Um, Mm. That's probably the most important thing of all. (laughs) is is the idea that the drive comes from you and it's something you want to do and you're able to focus and do it for a lot of hours in a way mm-hmm. that is not just putting in the hours but being efficient with that time. And then actually resilience is huge. You know, I've learned far more from my failures than from my successes. Uh, and it's how people cope with failure that really um, measures their Uh, abilities to succeed, I think, in music and what that building of that resilience can do, coping with criticism and understanding it as something that someone's saying on a particular time, not taking it as a personal insult or anything that even means anything. It's just being able to sort of, okay, this person has made this observation. What can I learn from that? Uh, Mm. And this is really tough. And I think, you know, again, that's something that all the if you like successful people have is, is a kind of resilience and attached to that resilience is humility. Mm. Um, and that's key. I mean, the, you know, the day of the sort of uh, prima donna egocentric musicians are, are long gone. People can't behave badly anymore. You know, you, you can't be egotistic. You can't be horrible to people. You can't, you know, demand only orange smarties in your room backstage and this kind of thing. And so the next thing, <laughs> this is quite a long list. The next, the next thing is highly developed interpersonal skills, and this is, this is unbelievably important. Highly developed interpersonal skills. There was some great article I re- read recently about the visual art world, and they basically did a study. It was relating to a book. This article they did a study about artists who were successful, and basically mm. the conclusion of the book was that the artists who were most successful were the ones who had the most highly developed network of friends and contacts. Uh, realizing, of course, that, you know, you can learn from everybody. You know, learn learning from certain things that people do. I mean, you, you, can, you, you can even learn things from people who do things badly. So again, going back to the talent myth, uh, mm. a really, really important thing is to have a great teacher or group of teachers um, that not only... Teach you well, but look after you and understand what you need as you're developing at the different stages uh that is down to luck and a lot and a lot of of this um, success thing is is down to luck um, mm-hmm. luck plays an enormous aspect in in everyone's career and there's very little we can do about that mm-hmm. so a great teacher an inspiring peer group i mean this is why places like Royal Academy of Music, Yehudi Menuhin School, Royal College of Music. They're great places to study, not because necessarily um, you're going to learn from the teachers, although of course you do, but to have a peer group that is supportive and that you can learn from is amazing. Um, and we're coming to the most important aspect of all these, these things. Um, you know, what else I've got on my list here, of course, a supportive family environment. Incredibly important. But the biggest thing of all is confidence. And, and for me, confidence is at the root of everything. Absolutely mm. everything that anybody does in any situation. It sounds like a sweeping generalisation, but you know, you look at a football team, they're, they're putting their passes together, they're dominating the game, suddenly the other team will score and you'll see that mm. the team will play worse because they've had their confidence shattered. And this is really mm. hard. I mean, I think, you know, everyone has confidence issues. You can't, you can't pretend for a second that you can just go out and be super confident. Because mm-hmm. confidence exists in this tiny, tiny sort of uh, thread between arrogance and self-deprecation. So go too far one way and you just become arrogant, unpleasant, and you're not nowhere near self-critical enough. Um, go the other way, you become self-deprecating and and i think the confidence stripe if you like in this in this sort of image um for most people is very very thin it's like a sort of piece of thread uh mm-hmm. and i think one of the things we should try and do as people and again this is the lesson that's been the most meaningful is is to make that thread a little bit wider you know so rather than walking the tightrope you're walking along a nice comfortable bridge of confidence
0: mm. I heard the interview that you did for Putney Music in London and in that interview you talked about the changes that you made in your early life regarding the instruments that you played. Um, In that interview you said that the reason you switched so much was because you wanted to find the thing that you could be best at among your peers. And it struck me that that doesn't necessarily come from a place of confidence. Were you a confident child? And what was it that motivated those switches?
1: Wow, that's a great question. Thank you. I suppose it's, if I'm really honest about it, it's it's that sort of desire that we all have to be special in some way. Um, You know, to be slightly different, we're all individuals kind of approach. I think like a lot of young people, I was very underconfident for a very long time. And you just do your best to kind of hide it. Um, And then, of course, you get to a point when you realize that, you know, you've been suffering with imposter syndrome for years. And then you start getting to know people a bit better. And realizing that, well, A, everyone suffers from it. And the people who you thought were absolutely amazing are actually not that amazing. They're quite sort of human. You know, they've got a lot to offer, but they're not... They're not like some kind of different breed or different race of the super talented or the people who deserve to do well, you know and this realization that anyone, actually if they had the right combination of um, right skill set or approach, could achieve an enormous amount. And the starting point, you know was important, but not fatally so. I didn't want people to think I harbored unrealistic ambitions. You go into so right, I'm going to go into music. So obviously you, you want to change the world. That's what you have to do. You have to go in there and, and tell them how it's done and, and change mm. everything. Um, so I always had this kind of uh, ambition to make things happen. But it was mm. not something you, you would necessarily talk about or, or admit to. Um, and I think the thing with confidence came when I was able to express that desire to achieve things to a high level rather than you know what I was afraid of was saying to someone oh I want to go to the Royal Academy of Music and study composition and guitar and them saying huh no chance mate Mm. you know so it was almost as if this confidence was was built around the idea of well if I express my ambitions is someone going to knock me back and just tell me it's impossible because I think you know that's one of the most destructive p- things that people can do is is destroy dreams and so sometimes you know possibly true in my own case as i kept my dreams to myself so that no one could actually tread on them
0: dreaming is a huge part of our lives as musicians and it can be easy to get bogged down by self-doubt and outside judgment how do you cultivate imagination in your own creative process
1: one of the things I love to do when when traveling is go and see visual art shows. Um, whether it's a sculpture, a painting, or whatever, I mean, you know, the imagination in in visual arts is great because you're not kind of, you know, not drawn into the technique of it. Um, you're just there experiencing the ideas in the raw. And it's very easy to to uh, be sidetracked from ideas in music. You know, you're worried about the quality of the sound, the quality of, of phrasing or whatever, but actually what art is about is ideas and ideas come from imagination. So I think of all these, you know, if, if going back to the idea of the talent myth or what lessons have you learnt to be the most meaningful is that imagination is at the center of, of art, basically. And we mustn't mm. forget it.
0: Steve Goss, what is a lesson that you would like to impart?
1: This is really to do with the genius myth. Um, the mm. idea that a composer is is this kind of uh, special being that somehow produces masterpieces that then the interpreters have to kind of try and interpret. Um, mm. And I would say that what I would like to put is that music is about giving and not taking. It's social and collaborative and not lonely. Music is not something you do on your own. I mean, yes, we all spend a lot of time practicing or sitting at a, at a piano, guitar or keyboard or computer writing music, but actually, you know, it's really about the interaction between people and exchanging of ideas and that interaction with the world. And the, and the genius myth really, really winds me up. You know, this, this idea that the composer is the sole source of a particular work you know, that there is something Mm. special about them. Basically, you know, composing is a craft. You know, anyone can come up with any ideas. Anyone can have a great idea. You know, take for example, literature. Uh, Here's an idea for you. Two people fall in love, their parents don't get on, they die. Mm -hmm. But it takes Shakespeare to turn that into (laughs) Romeo and Juliet, right? (laughs) Uh, to paste things into And a lot of this is about technique. It's a lot about uh, craft, and it's a lot about working hard. You know, when Beethoven wrote the Ode to Joy, Ninth Symphony theme, he did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of drafts to find something that could be universal and simple, and that everyone could sing, and that would would have the sort of message that he wanted. You know, this is someone who grafted, 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 millions of drafts of things, Mm. never quite happy with things always changing. You know, the idea of sort of sitting down and having the music flow through you like some kind of vessel uh, is just ludicrous. I think as, as interpreters, as guitarists, uh, that people have far too much uh, respect for the score, as if it's some kind of mm-hmm. sacred text, you know, that it's kind of, you know, written in tablet. And, and it's largely because there's a kind of disconnect between a creative music making and composing, you know, it's almost as if a composer is a different being from a performer. And of course, this is ludicrous because everyone's a musician, and up until mm. the 19th century, basically, you know, and even throughout the 19th century, composers performed and performers composed. You know, you look at the pianists of history; they all composed until you get to Rachmaninoff, and then suddenly, after the First World War it's almost as if composition became a sort of theoretical science and was taught at universities rather than at music colleges. And so this was the very worrying thing, that somehow the composer writes these great scores that you must adhere to in every single possible detail uh, because you are merely Mm. the performer. But of course, you know, the performer was at the forefront of music making before. And if you like, the composer often was the performer. And actually, they're just putting ideas down for the performer then to take things much, much further. You know, with a lot of the pieces of music that... I've got my name on that I've written. The thing that makes them great is not necessarily what I did, but what the performers Mm. then did with what I provided for them and what we worked on together, and sometimes collaborated throughout the whole process. So it's this kind of um, idea that you have to have imagination and craft, basically. You know, composers aren't geniuses, not even Bach.
0: While we're talking about questioning the authority of the written score, I would love to ask you briefly about your piece 451 that you wrote alongside Zoran Dukic. So this is a piece which is based on the Ray Bradbury novel, Fahrenheit 451, which if listeners don't know, depicts a dystopian future where books are outlawed and are systematically eradicated and burnt. Um, The score for that piece that you wrote was never published and every copy of it has been burned. Was that a statement on compositional ownership or uh, is the story of The Burnt Score just a fabulous rumour?
1: No, it is, it is true. I mean, it's, uh, it's a kind of crazy idea. Uh, and, it, and I have to confess it was Zoran's idea, the idea of The Burnt Score uh, and that we wouldn't mm. publish The Score. So this does question the whole uh, authority of The Score. And actually, you know, he's made a beautiful recording of that piece for, for GSI. And um, mm. you can just go watch it on YouTube and then there's the piece, you know, what more do you need? If you've got a pair of ears Mm. and eyes, you can learn it. Zoran's even done a lesson on tone base, teaching people how to play the piece. But there is no score. So therefore, you don't know what the time signature is. You know, um, Mm. you don't know how... Because notation really fixes the way we think about music. um, Mm. And not necessarily in a good way. So, I mean, the piece is is kind of a joke and a gimmick. Um, It comes from the idea that in in the book, Fahrenheit 451, and there's a sort of group of of um outcasts who kind of learn books from memory so pass their books on by memory and this is just such a great concept uh, i just love the idea of a of, you know a piece that is only passed on through memory an oral tradition like so much music was of course um, which is why so much of the sort of wealth of of folk music and uh other aspects of music was, was completely lost popular music completely lost because there was no kind of notation uh, and in mm-hmm. fact, you know, the only only t- only flavour we get of some of the early stuff is when the learned people listen to people playing and try to write the piece down. You know, the score. I, th- I think the the whole the whole age of the score, the fixed score, has, is is really coming to an end. And of course, the most important thing about music is that it it's a plastic art. It's constantly changing. You know, it's not fixed. I mean, that's the thing that visual artists are so jealous of. Is that when a painting is is kind of finished and hung on a wall, that's it. Whereas music can be revitalised again and again. And again, Mm. music is something much less fixed and something much less uh, something that's that's basically indestructible Mm. and much more uh, malleable and plastic.
0: Mm. It is interesting. I think it's a, a wonderful reflection on how we exist as a society these days, too, that with the phenomenon of fake news and social media that we have become incredibly obsessed with provenance and intentions and the narrator.
1: Yeah, we, we are, absolutely. And this kind of brings, on, brings us neatly onto your third question, I think, uh, which I'll ask myself, which is, what is the lesson you're working on right now? Um, and, th- and this is it, actually, is um, to question everything, uh, particularly tradition. Um, Mm. Now, tradition is a really difficult thing. Now, tradition isn't about doing things correctly. It's just about doing things how they've always been done. Um, Mm. I even got a couple of my favorite quotes about tradition here, just for fun. This one's from Krishnamurti, who says, Tradition becomes our security, and when the mind is secure, it is in decay. Mm. Mm. And then Mark Twain, The less there is to justify a traditional custom, the harder it is to get rid of it. (laughs) which I think is brilliant. Um, and then Somerset Maugham very sensibly says, tradition is a guide, not a jailer. Have you ever seen the film The Life of Brian?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's a point where, where there's the Monty Python film where Brian is being sort of followed by all these people. And he stands at his window and says, look, the whole point is that you're all individuals. And of course, the crowd shatters one. Yes, we're all individuals. <laughs> and he said, the whole point is not that you follow someone and do what they do, but to take their actions as a model for your own way of doing things. Very early on, I would always think, well, I'd love to include jazz and popular music and kind of different styles in my music and not just have to write this kind of atonal, high modernist stuff. And I had the great fortune of the world moving in such a way that that became permissible. And as soon as it becomes Mm. permissible, suddenly it kind of uh, vilifies your ideas. And there are lots of creative people who've been brought up at times when style has gone against them. Uh, you know if you take mm. someone like you know Robert Simpson or during the sort of 1950s and 60s when uh, William Glock was at the BBC only one style of music would do if you were writing anything else you could forget it you know and mm. a lot of modernist composers were very disparaging about Sibelius for example because he was writing in a kind of old-fashioned style um, and I think for me the the real liberation is this idea that uh, that suddenly music is a very plural thing and we're allowed to you know break from if you like the, the sort of linear tradition the kind of teleology the idea that we have you know as we're taught renaissance baroque classical romantic 20th century you know as if there's some kind of line or, or tradition that's connected up and it's, it's a total myth it's an educational kind of fallacy you know and, and the guitar has been very guilty of this of course when Sego- well, Segovia had a, had a really difficult time with the guitar because obviously when he was establishing the guitar in a concert instrument 20s 30s and so on Um, classical music and popular music were two very, very different things. Classical music was high art, important, you know, culturally significant. Popular music was irrelevant. You know, it's only in the 1960s that that kind of shifted center stage. So what he had to try and do was make the guitar a classical instrument. And the way he did that was by separating it from its folkloric roots. Um, Mm. So, you know, when he was working with composers, he wasn't commissioning new works for the guitar. He was backfilling a tradition. He was commissioning nineteenth century music by twentieth century composers. In the case of Ponce, specifically Sonata Romantica, write me a sonata in the style of Schubert. So he was sort of manufacturing a classical tradition for the guitar to make it seem like it had a repertoire like other instruments, so that in colleges you can do your Renaissance, your Bach, your classical. So the tradition we have is totally not joined up. You know, the idea of Dowland, Bach, Saw, Giuliani, Tarrega, lia uh, Casanova tedesco Ponce Britain Hense, um, Leo Brauer. you know that's not a line these these are all entirely <laughs> different things you know yeah, they're not yeah. even for the same instrument yeah. um you know it's it's not a tradition it's not it's not something which is joined up at all um mm-hmm. and it's time to kind of just forget about that and and also revel in the fact that the guitar is a you know, is open to pluralistic styles. You can go to a guitar festival and you can see Yaman Costa playing one night. You can see René Esquerdo playing another night and you can see, I don't know, Zoran Ducic playing another night. The range of yeah. music in those three concerts is so wide. You'd never get that at a piano festival. Tradition is a very dangerous thing. And and in the guitar, it was very useful for Segovia to kind of fabricate that tradition for the sake of his place in the, in the classical canon. And that was very, very important. Famously, in 1971, he, he put these, these four ideas he had for his life. His, his life's work was summarized in four points. One of them, was, of course, was to... Um, Commission works not from guitarists, but from real composers. This is another really Mm -hmm. interesting uh, (laughs) thing which we could talk about. But also to separate it from what he described as mindless folkloric music. And you know, he was very disappointed when composers actually showed some of the guitar's tradition in their works. He didn't like Turina's sonata because it included things which reminded him of you know Spanish traditional folk music. So therefore, it was not acceptable. It had to be high art. But, of course, in 1971, that's what the world was like. But it ain't like that anymore. So, you know, why on earth we sort of hang on to this tradition? And, 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 you know, it's perpetuated in music college um, syllabuses and it's perpetuated in associative board exams, you know, that somehow, you you know, you have this history and you have to play all the history. Of course you don't. Um, I don't even like the term classical guitar because it has, uh, you know, it has political and... um, historical overtones, you know. I think the first sighting of that expression was in, a, in an article in the, in the late 20s um, but it wasn't really in common parlance until in the 50s when one of Segovia's marketing people used it, uh, classical guitar, you know, to make it say this is a proper instrument because if you just said guitar it would imply popular music so you have to call it classical guitar. The term classical is a little bit a little bit charged. And I I suspect the whole nature of what classical music is or what we think of it is in in flux. and No one really knows what it means. The imagination, the creativity uh, can happen within whatever style you want, within any context that you want. You know. Mm. Um, And if we look at the kind of artworks that have had a kind of real impression on 21st century society, if we're really honest about it, it'll be the music of uh, Beyoncé, it'll be the Hamilton musical or the uh the complete albums of Chick Career, uh Mars Davis's output, you know. None of these are classical musicians. <laughs> you know, there was a time when people would, you know, listen to poppy music or whatever when they were young and then switch to classical at some point. But that kind of stopped and now you get people in their seventies listening to King Crimson and Genesis. Um rather than uh Beethoven or, or Mozart. And so letting go of that tradition, the whole you know, idea of the anxiety of influence, uh, just to let go of that is incredibly liberating and not feel that you're part of this great tradition that somehow has to, you know, you're standing on the shoulders of the giants from the past, all men of course, all white men, all these people, and that somehow, you know, your ultimate aim as a, as a composer is to be up there with them, to be made of marble, uh, just to let go of that is incredibly liberating.
0: Thank you for listening to Fret Not. As always, the transcripts from this episode and extended conversations are on our Patreon page. Join me in two weeks' time, where I'll be talking to Alexandra Whittingham about social media, classical music education, and imposter syndrome.